Welcome to Chit Chat and Chai with your hosts, R.C. Mala and Ritu. Welcome back, Chit Chat and Chai family and friends. Hope you've had a chance to listen to our matchmaking episode and pass it along to your family and friends. We are talking about women's mental health on this episode and why it's so important that all women recognize when they need to seek counseling and support. We will be talking to a specialist in this arena, Dr. Jasmine Sani. We are going to welcome Dr. Jasmine Sani, who is a psychiatrist, and we're going to talk about women's mental health, as mentioned earlier. So welcome. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Jasmine? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, it's an honor to be invited to speak about such an important topic on this podcast. Uh, a little bit about myself. I am a native New Yorker. I completed my residency in general adult psychiatry, and then I went on to a fellowship in community, community psychiatry. So I've worked in a few different roles since then. Currently, I'm at an adult outpatient clinic in Southern California with plans to begin a private practice soon as well. And I'm also a mom to a almost one-year-old, which keeps me quite busy as well. We, we have been there and we know what that is like. So, and welcome to Southern California. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm two, I just moved two weeks ago. So it's very nice to, to be here on the other, the other coast. Um, I just wanted to ask, what type of mental disorders are much more common in women than men? And do you see an increase in the number of patients? And if so, why do you think that is? So women are more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety and depression compared to men. They are more uh, likely to be diagnosed with substance use disorders or antisocial disorders. So for example, the rates are almost double for depression and anxiety in women as compared to men. I think that across the board, we're seeing an increase in the number of patients um, that we're treating, and there's several contributing factors to that. So of course, the pandemic, that has increased the levels of depression isolation, anxiety, as well as domestic abuse incidents. On the other hand, like destigmatization and more acceptance of mental illness, that's allowing people to seek care more often. So that's also turning up the rates that are being reported. You know what I find surprising is usually women tend to be more vocal. So if I have a problem, I tend to tell my girlfriends like, hey, like this is bugging me and men don't. So I find that really surprising that actually women have the higher rate versus men. Well, so what I think men tend to do, they, they're more likely to externalize their emotions in more of like an impulsive or aggressive way. And that's why it comes out in more of like alcohol, substance use, or anger problems. They're hesitant to express weakness um, and seek out professional help. So I think women, they, they do tend to internalize emotions. They rely on like, just like their core sense of support. But in a sense, that can actually cause like some more anxiety, withdrawal and loneliness um, because they're trying to like contain that within themselves. Um, and that's why I think the rates are probably higher in the, in the mood disorder component. And I think that's something that's kind of even been ingrained within like our gender roles from a very, very young age. Like men tend to just be like a stoic and more like I can't be you know, shown as a weak individual, whereas women are more like, okay, I have to be able to take care of all of these things. So let me just keep bottling things up inside of me. And then, you know, inevitably that's going to produce some sort of negative outcome. 
they are more likely to seek care. Like you said, like women are more comfortable just speaking of, about the fact that they are experiencing emotions. Um, they are those types of creatures biologically and men do not have that level of comfort. So we do see higher rates reported. Women do attempt suicide more, but men actually have higher rates of completion because their, their methods are more lethal. They are just more aggressive by nature in the types of attempts that they, they do. So do you agree with this statement, women have a completely different hormonal system, which as a result causes them to react more emotionally and become more exhausted on an emotional level? So I think mental health issues are very, very complex. And there's always like a range of factors. And there are biological factors that involve estrogen. But there's also a lot of environmental factors. And I think that's where some of the greatest discrepancies can be. So women tend to view themselves more negatively than men. So that vulnerability, I think that can contribute to a lot of the mental health problems. Um, and it's very easy to actually just say, you know, it's hormonal and that's why you're reacting this way, but it tends to be more that like it's a product of the environment that they have now been acclimated into since pretty much birth. And those social constructs have played a larger role than the actual hormone of estrogen. That's not to minimize estrogen. I mean, estrogen has been closely linked to emotional well-being. So there's obviously the estrogen producing years of a woman, pre-menstrual syndrome, uh, postpartum depression, all of those are related to estrogen. But I think that a lot of what we see is actual like social construct and environmental factors. And it's just easier for people to try to neglect that because those are just things that we have obviously come and grown up into rather than to just, you know, take accountability for that. Yeah. Because it, it, it pains me sometimes when I hear, oh, you know, she's hormonal. If people just kind of say, oh, you'll get over it because it's, you know, it's hormones. And sometimes I feel women, you know, we also don't help each other when friends and coworkers say, oh, I'd rather report to a man than a woman. You know? Yeah. And again, I think that is that social construct that has been implemented through generations in our societies, like, oh, a man has more authority, a man has more knowledge, a man has like a better plan of action. So, you know, you would feel more comfortable. And, and you know, it is a common, common thing that I've seen even within the medical field, like women don't help as many women accelerate the ladder. And there's obviously a ceiling there for us. Um, because I think that the competition between women becomes to a point where, you know, they feel threatened by each other rather than like more uplifting in nature. But the, the gender discrepancies, I think it's very easy for men to assume a more confident, self-assuring role and for women to have that vulnerability deep rooted inside of them. And that I think plays more of a role than the biological components. What do you think of hormone therapy then for women maybe going through menopause or postpartum? Well, so hormone therapy, I mean, we use it to boost our hormone levels and it's used to relieve symptoms of menopause. It's not my specific field and you should be talking to like your OBGYN about it, but there are pros and cons for, for any sort of therapy. Pros would be like you're relieving menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, night sweats, you're reducing your risk of osteoporosis, down the line, like reducing risk of diabetes and joint pain. All of those things are great. Um, and I think for 
for some people, that is a great choice. And there are other risks that are involved with hormonal therapy. So there is an increased risk of endometrial cancer. So especially if you still have your uterus intact, that can be affected or risk of blood clots or gallstone problems, um, breast cancer. So it really does depend on like, you know, your past medical history, your family history, what makes sense in terms of weighing out the risks and the benefits. But like I said before, estrogen is closely linked to a woman's emotional well-being. So if now you are in like your perimenopause stage and the levels of estrogen are dropping and it's producing a lot of depressive and anxiety symptoms, that might be the right sort of treatment for you. A well-educated and a well-aware spouse is going to be someone that's more likely to be supportive rather than someone that's just not equipped with the correct knowledge in the process. So I would say like, yes, hormonal therapy is a great tool, but also getting men, like the spouses of these women, the information that they need to provide relevant support. I think that is also just an essential step because even with hormonal therapy, there's still going to be ups and downs. And it's hard for an outsider to kind of understand what a woman is going through without having that knowledge. So a lot of it is just empowering men to like understand this process. I'm really glad you've talked about that. I mean, and I'm not pinpointing just South Asian men in the community, but Generally, we find that is not as a supportive role that men provide, especially during the hormonal changes of menopause. They don't try to understand, I think. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it's number one, it's getting that information to them through whatever channel that is. I think with like the younger generations, social media accounts, like you can like quickly send like a thing to your husband and be like, oh, like this is what, you know, I might be going through. And like that, that quick tidbit could yeah. just be just enough for them to like trigger something like, oh, okay. Like she's not just like cranky and irritable. Um, she's actually having this hormonal change, which is causing what I'm seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, same thing postpartum. For many, many generations, it was just a woman delivered the baby and then the man had no role for some period of time because it was kind of like, your role is to get through the postpartum recovery, deal with the trying to breastfeed. If you're not able to, you have no support and nurturing this child up until like they're able to just, you know, play with them. The, those hormonal levels are shifting, but a man who's, who's not undergoing that is unable to understand that unless like the information is just put in the forefront of their brain. Just like with anything else, I think men respond really well to like directive actions. Like they, you know, how men always joke around, like I can't read your mind or like, I don't know what you're thinking. Be as direct and upfront about like, this is what I'm experiencing. There's an actual science behind it. And this is what you can do to help the next time I'm acting differently from the way you know you normally see me act. Are families taking postpartum depression more seriously than in the past? I think people are in general overall compared to maybe some years ago. However, I think there's still quite a lot to be done. I mean, recently we've seen just even in the news with South Asian women, there's a lot of untreated postpartum depression that unfortunately has resulted in suicide and now babies growing up without having their mother from a very, very young age. So while I think we're in a better place than we were, I don't think we're anywhere close to where we should be. I think, again, those are really tough conversations to have. 
I think it's tough for a woman to have. I think those initial weeks are very foggy. Those are tough conversations for a man to have because they don't have the knowledge. They're not equipped with the resources. I think they're tough conversations. The generations that are above this woman who just had a baby because they were not provided with those types of resources. So it's really, really something that they're not able to like confidently pass down. And I think right now is like a very pivotal point because we can change that direction. We are now in a much better place in terms of self-awareness and knowledge and experience. And we know what we do now can have ripple effects to the generations that come after us. And if we can start to shift that conversation now, if we can tell a woman, even when she's pregnant, these are the changes you're likely going to experience because nearly every woman experiences postpartum blues. I mean, that is your estrogen drops significantly. So naturally that's going to produce something within your body, just like with any other medical thing. If your thyroid changes, if your sugar changes, you experience symptoms. So when there's a drastic shift of any hormone in your system, it is going to have an effect on you. So if you let women know, even when they're pregnant, this is going to happen in the first two to three weeks after having a baby, and that's normal, and you normalize it for them, when they're experiencing it, they are going to want to say, oh yeah, this is exactly what X, Y, and Z experience, and I'm not alone. When it becomes postpartum depression is when that blues phase passes and it becomes to a point where it's now inhibiting the bonding with the baby or it's becoming the thoughts are so severe that they're linked to suicide or harmful thoughts. Um, that's when intervention is needed. And I don't think enough people are having that conversation early enough. Everyone has a different body. So it's very hard to say that someone's six-week experience is the same as the next person that just delivered the same baby at that age. Access and early intervention are going to be the key things to changing the rates of postpartum depression. I, I know Mala and I have discussed this um, separately, privately. In my own example, breastfeeding just did not come natural. It just didn't come naturally. And I tried and I tried and I was told by my mother-in-law and of course the physicians that this is the best nutrition for your child. But they also said that, you know, my, the doctor, that if it doesn't work, there are options, you know, you can go to formula. But at home, the pressure was, why can't you breastfeed? What's wrong? I mean, why? Why? And I was like, I can't. It's not happening, you know, and I would feel really down. I would be like, oh, my God, I'm not doing this right. There's something that I'm not doing that's good for this child. It really puts pressure on you. And if you don't realize that, oh, well. This happens, it's normal. It's not just me. There are several women in the world that go through the same thing. Then you can be like, oh yeah, I, I'm not alone. It's okay. And I can feed my child in another fashion and the child will just be just as healthy. You know, you don't talk about these things until you actually go through them. I also struggled a lot with breastfeeding. And one of the biggest advice I give to pregnant friends now is get linked up with a lactation consultant early on, because if that's a goal for you, and it's, it doesn't have to be a goal for everybody, but if that's something you want to work on, try to get linked up with someone early because for as natural as it's supposed to be, it's not, and you need support. And it's not gonna be your husband, and it's not gonna be your mother, and it's not gonna be your mother-in-law. You're gonna need a professional right. to help guide you. It's not as easy as it's supposed to be. Because I had that support early on, I was able to do a lot longer than I think I would have been able to do otherwise. But again, if you don't, if you're not aware that these resources exist, 
then you are just, you're shooting in the dark. Like you have no idea what you're doing. It's foggy in your mind. You're trying to feed a hungry, hungry baby and it's frustrating. Um, And that, and it's just a deadly cycle where if you're already feeling blue, then that may, you know, trigger the next level into full-blown depression or full-blown anxiety. And the pressure doesn't help either when you're hearing it from all these people. Like, oh, this breastfeeding is so important. It's like, I know that. Like, don't you think I know and want to do it? Do you see eating disorders and substance abuse as an increasing issue with women in the South Asian community or in in women general? Yes, I do. Um, I see that as an increasing issue. Um, I think the two often go hand in hand. The seeds are planted in a woman's mind at very, very early ages. Actually, I think there's been studies done where they have surveyed 10, 12-year-old girls and they're already talking about dieting. They're already talking about being skinny. So those those social constructs are in place at a very, very early age. I think within the South Asian community, people often feel like they have the right to talk about your body. Like we've all heard it growing up, like being thinner is things to like um, getting married or being more successful. Same with like the color of your skin. Fairer people are just more presentable. Um, you'll have a better marriage opportunity. So culture definitely plays a role when we're talking about the development of body dysmorphia. Um, and no matter like how liberal you're upbringing is people family members will always openly speak about your your appearance throughout your youth and that again starts that self-critical voice in a woman's mind from a very early age that vulnerability is starting to build and it's confusing for someone at a young age like when you feel like your body is under constant assessment like Food is such an integral part of like the South Asian community. So on one hand, people are telling you eat, eat, eat. But then like one month later, they see you and then they make a comment. It's like, oh, you know, so you're true. looking like a little like, you know, heavy today. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it's, it can, it's very confusing in terms of a young woman's mind. Like what is okay? Should I be eating and enjoying this meal with my family? Or if I eat this, like next month is someone going to say something to me. Same about like being out in the sun. Oh, don't spend too much time in the sun. Like you're going to get too dark. Or here are some products. Have you considered this? Like the the millions of money Fair and Lovely has made. I mean, it's it's astounding. (laughs) And I think like these are the people that are feeding into the comments. I mean, light skin colorism comes from colonialism, like from the British Empire. And that's just been ingrained generational, generation to generation. And it doesn't help that like the South Asian community has a caste system and the lower caste, they've had to be doing physical labor in the sun and that's why they're darker. So all of this comes from somewhere and it's been carried over and over again. And again, I think we're in a place right now where we can start to change that conversation but it's going to take a lot of work for us as a society to actually shift forward. I mean, we can make incremental changes today, but overall it's going to take quite some time to shift that. And so just to go back to the question, like the eating disorders and the substance abuse, very much increasing and and very much going hand in hand for, for women at this moment. Social media is also not helping. I mean, you see a specific thing, you think that's the reality, you're exposed to it at a much younger age than you used to be. So you grow up thinking a certain way. Young minds are very impressionable. The prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. So all of these things are starting earlier and earlier.
earlier and they're getting ingrained in us and it's harder to break habits in your 20s and 30s to catch 22. I mean, in some ways, knowledge is power, but on the other hand, it can also contribute to a lot of what's being developed. Yeah. So, I mean, this reminds me, I don't know if you, I'm sure you girls have heard this. The minute somebody would get engaged, the first comment, oh, the girl is very fair or somebody really dark could have the most beautiful features, but that's not what they would focus on. I will say that nowadays it's diminishing. You don't hear it. Yeah. Anymore. Fair skin is just associated with like a higher social status. So of course your family is going to be like the fairer someone is like the better marriage you'll have because they're going to have a higher social standing. And that's just not simply true. I think the emphasis our South Asian community puts on women, even from the day they were born, that your ultimate goal is marriage. That's another huge thing, I think, for women growing up that affects their mental health because they literally are growing up thinking, my ultimate goal has to be finding this so-called partner that they have ingrained in my head that my marriage is the ultimate. I mean, I see from my own daughter, she's very career-minded. She really does not have any interest in getting married. And if it happens one day, so be it. But it's not her goal. Um, but mentally, you know, it affected her because people will ask, oh, so when are you getting married? When are you, why aren't you getting married? It affects the mental health a lot because it puts so much pressure. Yes, I agree. It does. And you know, it doesn't, it never just ends with marriage because then you get married and it's like, oh, when are you having a baby? And people really don't talk about infertility and IVF within our community. So someone could very well want to have a child and could really be struggling with that process. And then all they're hearing at a family gathering is, oh, you don't have a baby yet? Oh, you're, you don't want to get pregnant? And you just, you, you never really know what someone is going through when you're saying something and you think you're saying it in such a lighthearted way. It can have such profound effects on someone. I mean, I know so many people that have gone through this challenge um, and then so many people who get pregnant very, very 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 quickly and just because it's easier for one person or another like does not make it right to ask it's a very personal choice and i think i mean in this country in general like we talk about women's body without actually having the knowledge to speak about a woman's body and make decisions for them but that's just another example like indian and bengali pakistani like all they see cultures they speak about marriage, children, second children, or whatever it is, just as if they have that sort of right and they don't. How does one convince a woman that is clearly going through something that, you know, it's okay to seek help? You know, you're right. It's quite challenging when someone refuses to seek help. And I often tell family members, you may need to introduce that idea to a loved one two times, three times, five times, 10 times, even before they agree that they want to talk to someone. And then it may be, you know, another three, four times of reminders like, hey, did you actually call to set up that appointment? Because with people that just that have that hesitancy to seek help, consistency is going to be key in those instances. You know, the stigma within the South Asian community is still very prevalent. And sometimes it's also just finding that right avenue to have it click for someone. So if it's a young person, I would say like, oh, you know, follow a few of these Instagram accounts, like you'll get some really good information, like South Asian mental health, for example, or brown girl therapy or things like that, where, you know, just because they're, they're just scrolling anyway, right? And then even if they get like two, three posts where it makes them think like, oh, 
that kind of sounds like what I was going through the other day. Like I'm a little bit more interested. And then if it's an older adult, maybe someone is speaking with someone in their age group who's had a similar experience. I mean, that's going to be the most helpful insight. Like after you experience the loss of like a family member and you're grieving and, you know, there's no one else that you feel like really is understanding, but then, you know, there's someone else in the community who recently just lost someone and what was helpful and supportive for them. Could those two people be connected? So sometimes it's just finding that avenue where that's where they're open. And then from there, kind of like circling back to, hey, maybe now it's time to like see a professional because talking to that lady from the temple was helpful. But again, her resources are limited because, you know, she's not fully equipped. She didn't go to the the school for it. So, you know, if you thought that was helpful, maybe if you talk to this person who, you know, was a license and, and deals with this and is trained in this specifically, that might be helpful. Or, hey, you liked a few of those posts. You thought that that sounded familiar. So what about if we actually talk to a therapist about it who might have been the person writing that? I think it's also really good nowadays, like a lot of Bollywood celebrities are using their platform to raise awareness. So sometimes it's just being like, oh, you know, Deepika Bhadagan, she started this foundation for depression. Um, She speaks very openly about it. So if you're going through something similar, like doesn't matter how rich you are, you know, what your status is, like when it comes to feelings and emotions, everyone's on the same playing field. Pointing out those examples here and there and just it's just following up like every week, just checking in like, hey, did you get a chance to and not being disheartened? Don't take it personally. They're not help rejecting of you. They're help rejecting of an unfamiliar process. And that's what's scary. It's not the fact that, you know, they don't want you in. It's the fact that this is going to be a tough thing for them to open up about. And that's scary. It's scary for everyone. Human instinct is to shut down when you know that you're going to be going into like a fight or flight like mode. So you want to bottle yourself up and protect yourself. So if someone keeps pressing you, do this, do this, do this, you're going to like push them off and put a barricade. So if you just have open dialogues, if you just stay consistent, hey, do you remember that we talked about this? Did you ever get a chance, but not in a nagging or a like condescending tone? Like, oh, why didn't you? Why didn't you call them? Because that's going to make the wall even stronger. But you know, sometimes it it does take 10 times, 10 follow up like weeks to just get the person to call for an appointment. Sometimes it depends on your relationship with the person. If you're able to kind of gather some resources and make an appointment, be like, hey, actually a friend used this therapist. They really like them. I was able to set up an appointment. Nowadays, everything's so like easy and virtual. You don't have to worry about going outside and getting in the car and going all the way there. Do you mind just like, doing like a quick virtual call with this person. See if you like them. If you don't like them, you don't have, there's no obligation. So it really does depend on like your relationship, what comfort level you have, um, making that sort of like, you know, initiative move for them. But consistency is going to be key. And I think when people are not in treatment, it can, and you know, they're living in a house with other family members, that can also contribute to like caregiver burnout is what we call it. So 
traditionally we think of something like you know caring for an elderly parent and how exhausting that can be and that leads to a lot of burnout um, but that also happens with untreated mental illness psychosis bipolar disorder in addition to getting that person in the right sort of care we also need to step back and be like how is this affecting me am i now also experiencing a range of symptoms because either frustration um exhaustion am i having my own anxiety about how i'm going to manage this um, and do i need resources too so what kind of issues do women generally face that may trigger off a line of depression anxiety all different kinds of mental health issues you know i think one of the um things that is often overlooked is about like 20 percent of all women will experience rape or attempted rape at some point in their lifetime and that's a that's pretty big big number and that doesn't have to be you're necessarily at a bar and that's an you know, un, unwarranted interaction. Um, that can also be within a marriage, within a consensual romantic relationship. So that experience alone increases the risk of developing a mental health disorder exponentially. Women that are exposed to like higher levels of sexual violence and they have higher rates of PTSD, that's linked to depression and anxiety, other mood disorders. I don't think that's talked about enough in our community. I think, um, especially within a marriage, not every um, sexual encounter is consensual. It's one of those things that are, that's often overlooked. And again, because we're not talking about it and we're not having candid conversations about it, it's getting swept under the rug. And with it comes up with these disorders that are then being untreated. That is shocking. That I'm just 20% is just unbelievable. We did an episode on domestic violence and um, we did talk a little bit about um, sexual violence against women, especially in the domestic setting, in a, in a home where mm -hmm. a lot of people judge that as, oh, well, you're married, you know, and this is part of your relationship. You should, but domestic violence isn't just about beating a woman. Um, it's, yeah, it, and a woman should know that her body is not just being used for the pleasure of her partner she has a right and a say in what she would want to do with her body in any sort of relationship that it is women need to feel empowered in that in that way it's not just because they're my husband this has to happen so i think those are those are tough truths to to swallow but they are important ones sometimes um women i think maybe more than men and i may be wrong um, do they go through anxiety or depression once the kids leave home? Yeah, you know, actually, I think there is an, a term for that, empty nest syndrome. And you're right, I think that maybe women do go through it. The roles of men and women within parenting are shifting now more than ever, but I still think that women probably go through it a little bit more than men. And it is a syndrome. So feelings of loss, sadness, anxiety, grief, fear, they're all common. And I think it stems from a loss of purpose. Like, you know, your whole 18 years have been spent like hustle and bustle, day-to-day -day parenting, activities, drop-offs, pickups. Um, and it's a tough transition, you know, especially for women who largely define themselves by their parenting roles. I mean, the generations above us, like that was like a hundred percent of their life. 
I think with my generation and generations to come, people are learning to a little bit, you know, balance their own priorities and work and other things along with parenting. But I don't think it takes away from the fact that that's such a big role and you have been consumed by it for nearly two decades. What I would, you know, like to tell anyone that's experiencing that is don't lose sight of the new chapter that's beginning. So it's a new chapter in your child's life. You know, they're going off to college or they're getting married or they're starting a new job. They're moving away from you. And that's great and exciting for them. But it's also a new chapter for you. And that phase can be quite rewarding. Like you can pick up a new hobby, tackle a new challenge, start a podcast, um, and do things that maybe you just never had the time to, um, because, you know, it's also, it's a new leaf for you as well. And while one chapter has closed, another one has opened. And with that can come great, great thing. How can we as a society stop looking at mental illness with the stigma attached to it rather than an actual illness that can be treated and people can go on to live a fulfilling life um, and do many things? Well, I think podcasts like this are a great start. Um, you know, your viewers, they're absorbing tidbits today that they may have never been exposed to previously. So we're already making some strides with information being dispersed through the, these various channels. I'm quite hopeful that we'll be in a better place in the next decade. I think aside from this, you know, one of the things I like to do is I try to make some parallels between mental health and medical conditions. So for instance, what I try to say is, you know, if diet and exercise alone can't manage your diabetes, you take medication, right, to help lower your blood sugar and you increase your lifespan. So similarly, if you need an antidepressant to boost serotonin in your brains, because we know serotonin is that feel-good hormone and it's going to help with the depression, help with the anxiety, that's also going to help you live a longer and more fruitful life. So sometimes what I just try to do when there is that huge stigma, because just even the term mental health can be very triggering for people or just like off-putting, I try to relate it back to some sort of like medical condition, because that's something that people are more accepting of. And that's actually something that they've probably already experiencing. They're taking a medication maybe for blood pressure or they're taking a medication for arthritis or they take something for a migraine, right? And you can create that parallel much easier than to talk about the theory of mental health. For someone that doesn't have that background and awareness, that's a very, very tough barrier to kind of overcome. So sometimes I try to just simplify it in those ways. Um, and that's helpful for the, for the older generations particularly because, you know, they didn't grow up having these conversations, but it's much easier to, to kind of relate it to a, a more concrete, tangential, um, tangible thing rather. Because I think a lot of the stigma comes around medications, like, oh, I don't need a medication to feel happy. And I'm not telling you to take a medication to feel happy. You're telling me you're not feeling like yourself and I want you to feel like yourself. Sometimes medications play a helpful role getting people there. Medications don't have to be forever. The same way we do exercises, um, like you'll do a crossword, they tell people with, you know, to prevent Alzheimer's or uh, dementia, do crossword puzzles. And that's a great habit and a good helpful exercise. But if you have a family history of this, and you know, if you're more prone to 
getting developing something like that down the line, would you take a medication to, to help with your memory? You would. So similarly, it's it's not a happy pill, but if it's something that's going to be able to get you out of bed and going to work and feeling more like yourself, I would consider that like a small victory. So sometimes it's just putting it in um, plain terms and medical, medicalizing it a little bit for it to be more relatable. So you had mentioned, and I just jotted down, um, brown girl therapy. Do you have a couple of others that maybe people can first start? South Asian mental health. South Asian SMH, which stands for South Asian Sexual and Mental Health Alliance. We had a, a really yeah. good conversation. I know. Yeah, this I is know. great. Seriously, I learned a lot. Like, seriously, there's a lot of good, I mean, things you know, but when you just say it the way you said it, exactly. it just seems so natural and normal. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of mothers, daughters, grandmothers out there that maybe heard the podcast today and will really benefit from it so thank you so much Dr. thank you so much for having me thank you thank you i thank really you. appreciate the conversation thank you so much for bringing awareness to this i think as we said the most important thing we can do is talk about it and normalize it we probably will have you back again for a couple other episodes in the future I'll be happy to be back i think even within our conversation today we could have had Full, full discussions on a lot of different things. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do that. Well, thank you so much again for having me. Yes. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, no one should have to suffer through depression, anxiety, or any other mental disorder. So please seek help if you feel any of the symptoms that we have discussed above. Stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. So we will see you in a couple of weeks. Till we meet again, remember life is not short. Life is unpredictable, so always, always strive to stay happy. And add a little spice to your life. And join us again for a little chit-chat and chat.